It was like this huge light bulb moment for me where I realized instead of going after houses that are listed on the MLS, I'm going after vacant land that is not listed anywhere. So nobody else even knows about these deals. And because of that, I can make really low offers to very motivated sellers. And if they don't sell it to me, they're going to lose the property and get nothing for it. Ever wondered how to get into real estate investing? I'm Alex Freeman, and today we have Seth Williams, owner of RE Tipster and part-time real estate investor. Both of his companies make more than six figures per year. RE Tipster is a YouTube channel and website that educates people on real estate investing and provides them with the contracts to do it themselves. Seth's real estate investment company buys land that no one is competing for at dirt cheap prices, then resells it when it becomes high in demand. He's going to share his strategies and answer questions like how to get started, how he identifies good opportunities, the timeline for reselling the land, how to acquire clients, and how he manages his business. Seth, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. And so to kind of kick things off, you actually own two complementary businesses. Uh, can you share your story with our listeners of when and why you started each business? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, as a real estate investor, I first got this idea of buying a real estate and trying to make money from it. It was way back in like probably 2006, seems like an eternity ago. And, uh, you know, as most novice real estate investors do, I started getting on my local MLS, you know, my, you know, just for sale by owner, just random websites around me that would have real estate for sale. And uh, I could not find deals. I could, I could not make anything, find anything that made sense even remotely. So I just found it really frustrating and confusing, but I still believed like there has to be something here. I mean, I know people do this and they make it work. So why can't I make it work? And uh, it was around 2008 when I discovered this interesting twist on the real estate business with going after vacant land properties. There's a very key component of what makes this kind of business work when you're buying and selling vacant land. And that is about how to find really good deals, like making very, very low offers that people will actually say yes to, and then buying these properties just with cash without taking out any loans or debt. And it turned out to work really well. Like my first real shot at trying to make it work, it was early 2009. I was in Michigan, which was like the worst state to be in. Nobody wanted to be in Michigan. People were just trying to get out left and right. I was able to get a list from the county of all people in the county who were delinquent on their property taxes, which basically meant they still own their, their land, but they were owing taxes on it. And if they didn't pay off those taxes soon, the county was going to seize their property and they were going to get nothing for it. You know, I, I sent out a few hundred little yellow postcards to these people just saying, look, I see you own vacant land and I'm looking to buy land in your area. If you want to sell, give me a call. And I got a surprising number of calls back from people and a lot of people wanted to sell. And I was able to make offers that were just crazy low. It was like this huge light bulb moment for me where I realized instead of going after houses that are listed on the MLS, I'm going after vacant land that is not listed anywhere. So nobody else even knows about these deals. And because of that, I can make really low offers to very motivated sellers. And if they don't sell it to me, they're going to lose the property and get nothing for it. So they had a very compelling reason to sell now. But it was around that time when I was able to do my first deal where I, I made an offer for 331 bucks to somebody who owned a half acre of, of vacant land. And uh, this person lived on the other side of the country. He hadn't seen his property in 20 years. And he 
he wasn't just willing to sell it to me. He was happy to sell it to me for that price. And I was able to buy it and I turned around and listed it for sale on Craigslist. I listed it for $1,900 and it sold in 11 days. So I did that business for a number of years. And eventually I realized like, I've kind of built up this little library of knowledge about how this business works. Maybe I should start just explaining things as I know them. And I started retipster.com in 2012, where I would just write these super comprehensive blog posts and occasionally make videos about, you know, trying to explain things even deeper. And uh, it really picked up steam over the next few years. And it was a ton of work, but it was fun work. It was work that I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. doing. So, wow. I mean, a lot to kind of unpack there in that story, which is, I I suppose, what we're doing here on this podcast. What kind of skills or knowledge did you have when you started flipping land that you relied upon uh, at that startup stage with maybe, you know, not a ton of real estate experience? Yeah, well, my job at the time, like my first real job out of college was working as a kind of like a glorified credit analyst for a small business financing company where we would finance uh, commercial real estate, which is kind of a a niche within the uh, banking world. And it's not exactly the same thing as buying and selling vacant land, but there's definitely crossover. So just understanding like, how do you form an LLC? And what does that even mean? Like, what does that do for you? Or how do you close a real estate deal? Or how do you do title research on a property? It's not like my job totally trained me in how to do that, but it definitely gave me a little bit of a leg up just in terms of being able to comprehend that stuff and understand why it's important. And then when you got when you got started, what was kind of the amount of money that you you put in to get started? How did you budget that out? Obviously, you know, buying pieces of land for $331 feels like yeah. a attainable amount of money for most people. Mm-hmm. Is it about finding those those $331 deals or is there, you know, an amount you might recommend for someone to have available to them when they get started. Yeah. Yeah. So I had 3000 bucks, but that was like the bare minimum. Like that left me very little room to make any mistakes at all. And the reason why that was enough is because, you know, getting this delinquent tax list from a county, for example, it's a hassle. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to get these kinds of lists, but the delinquent tax list is one that is typically very responsive because everybody on this list has this problem that if they don't get it solved they're losing that property. So it just has a lot of built-in motivation and that's why it's effective. But getting that list for most counties is a real hassle. When you get the list, it's a lot of work to sort through it and get it ready to send out direct mail from that. Like it can take hours and hours and hours to do it. But I was willing to do that work because I, I am a perfectionist like that in that sense. And I just knew like, 3,000 bucks is all I have. So like I have the, the time, but I don't have the money. So I really have to make this count. And then fast forwarding over to starting RE Tipster. Uh, what was your startup budget there? And how did you spend the initial investment into the site? Yeah, so RE Tipster, it didn't really cost a whole lot of money. I mean, it was like setting up a blog through WordPress and paying for hosting. I mean, it might've been like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, something like that. I mean, it was it was not a lot. It was the real investment was my time and brain power. And the whole reason that I even went down this path of thinking that that was a worthwhile thing for me to do was because I had discovered another blogger at the time named Pat Flynn, who runs smartpassiveincome.com. I was just like blown away by what he was doing. I didn't even understand like how he was making money, but at the time he was posting these income reports and he was was making like 80,000 bucks a month. 
I was like, well, if he can do that with, you know, the blogging world, maybe I can do that same kind of thing for real estate investors. And so I thought it was worth trying and uh, it worked. It took forever to start working, but it did. And what was that? What was the process of starting or, or how did the process of starting RE Tipster differ from when you started the land investment company? And was there anything you learned in that first foray into starting a business uh, that you applied when starting RE Tipster? Yeah, it was very different with some similarities. I think one of the similarities was just this idea of like, just keep going. Like, even if it doesn't feel like it's working, just keep going. Because the only way to fail at this is if you stop and give up. But if you stick to the fundamentals and keep plugging away, eventually something will probably happen. And it did turn out to happen for both. So then, uh, you know, you've got these two two different, one grown out of the other businesses. Mm-hmm. Is, do you consider one of them your, your main business that you yeah. spend most of your time on? Yeah, these days I would definitely consider RE Tips to be the main one. Uh, like I just breaking down the time spent, it's probably like 35 hours a week spent on RE Tipster and then five hours a week spent on the land business. And then what what kind of tools um, or SOPs are you using to effectively manage both businesses at once? So like in the land business, for example, there's certain basic things that any land flipper uses. One of them would be like tools to send out direct mail. Like when I'm sending out thousands of mail pieces to people, who might want to sell their property. I'm not printing that off on my computer and licking envelopes and putting stamps on it, that kind of thing. There's um, the one I currently use is called rocket print. It's a company that I can send to my spreadsheet and my template and they do everything for me. It takes me a few minutes and they handle all that stuff. Um, there's other CRM systems, even just like a spreadsheet system that's well, well put together and thoughtfully laid out uh, that kind of thing. Got a couple of websites going on the land business side that uh, automate stuff actually one one way that I get a lot of leads is not even from direct mail anymore, but people that find my website and want to sell their land and they can submit that stuff through my website, which saves a lot of time and mm-hmm. automates a lot of things. So there's that kind of stuff. And uh, on RE Tipster, it's Airtable, which it's actually a, a more recent thing, but we use Airtable to manage a lot of like content ideas and publishing calendars and the different VAs and employees involved on that business use that to collaborate and that kind of thing. Those are really great. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process of of that lead generation process. Can you dive a little bit more into what tools you're using um, and feel free to, you know, point people to helpful uh, RE Tipster posts that they might want to check yeah. out? Yeah, sure. In terms of like where to get the list from, there's actually uh, one blog post that might be helpful. It has a, has a video embedded in it that explains how this works, but uh, it's retipster.com forward slash finding motivated sellers and then the number one at the end, cause it's a three part blog post. That's a really, that's too long of a URL, but, but um, <laughs> the, the idea behind, behind doing this is there's a lot of different data services out there, particularly in the U S that make this surprisingly easy to do. The one that I use is called data tree. It's a subscription service where you can pick a state and a County or even multiple States and counties at the same time and filter based on property owners who own certain types of properties and download a list of these property owners, the property owners' names, their mailing addresses, and the addresses of the properties themselves, and use that to send out direct mail to people. It's just a super simple, convenient way to do this. And this is something that uh, you can't do in most other countries around the world. 
The U.S. just happens to make this property ownership data public. That's really the key way that most land investors get started and continue getting leads coming in the door. Another way to go about it is to create a buying website like what I've got. Um, there's a, another blog post and video explaining how that works at retipster.com forward slash buying website, all one word. But uh, this website serves as, it's a pretty simple, like a one page website where People can find it, and if there's somebody who owns land that they don't want anymore, they can request a cash offer from me. And in that process, they can fill out all their property information, what they think it's worth, where it is, parcel number, all this stuff. What I used to do was get that stuff and review it, and then reply and send them an offer. But now what my website does is it, it takes that information, and it takes whatever number they gave me as their estimated market value, and it waits an hour and sends an automatic reply with a cash offer for 18% of whatever number they gave me. So if they told me they thought their property was worth 100,000 bucks, my website will reply and send them an offer for $18,000. The idea is just to like, you know, that, that email, that's not a contract. That doesn't like legally obligate me to buy their property. It's just saying, hey, would you entertain this offer? And it just kind of puts it on autopilot in terms of finding out who out there is serious about selling for a discounted price? Because a lot of people respond and they say, no, like, I hate you. Like, get out of here. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> and that's fine. I mean, that I expect that from most people. But what I'm looking for are the few people out there who will say yes. And uh, the mm -hmm. website kind of does that on autopilot. And does that, so that, you know, gets that kind of initial conversation going. How much would you say negotiation then happens after that initial email? Like, are there people that respond and say, this is too low, but do they, how, how often do you get a counter offer there? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's not uncommon. Some people will actually, these days I'd almost say more often than not, that happens where they reply and say, for whatever reason, like, Hey, can I get a thousand bucks more? Or it's worth twice that amount. You know, there's, it's all over the map. And the interesting thing about land is that the process of selling land is kind of different than trying to sell a house. Like the places where you advertise it, the way that you advertise it is just a different skill set. So this is going to bring us to a section of our show we call our Fan Blitz questions. Uh, these questions come from the Upflip YouTube channel. So if you want to check out Upflip on YouTube, head over to YouTube and just type in Upflip and you'll find our channel there. It's a great YouTube um, channel, and by if the you way. Wanna... I checked it out and yeah, you guys yeah. have some awesome Thank stuff. Thank you. We appreciate that plug. Yeah. So these questions, uh, you know, looking for a 20 second answer from you uh, for the next few questions coming from, from people commenting on various YouTube videos. Uh, you listeners out there, if you go over to there and you comment on any of those videos, we might pull your question into a future podcast. So here we go. Ascending would like to know, uh, for real estate investing, do you recommend having a real estate license? You know, I think it probably depends on what kind of real estate investing you're doing. For what I do in the land space, I've never found it to be necessary. I've never had my own license. I just, I handle the properties that I own and that's it. Um, but I don't mean to imply that there's no benefit. I think if you have a license, it gives you access to like the MLS database, for example, which can be really helpful in terms of getting sales comparables and that kind of thing. Just sort of seeing a whole other perspective that a normal non-licensed person can't see. But when it comes to land, again, specifically, I, I don't think it's a deal breaker. I, again, I've never had one and it's never really hurt me significantly that I know of. Ascending would also like to know how inflation is impacting real estate compared to stocks. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm actually not really big in the stock market, so I, I don't probably don't have the right perspective on both worlds to tell you. But I mean, inflation affects everything to some extent. But 
I think what's affecting the super hot rising prices of real estate right now is just like a shortage of inventory. It's not necessarily an inflation issue per se. Like, I mean, that does play a role, but it's not, it's not the driving force behind it. And also just super low interest rates the way that they've been for a while now. It's also jacking up prices. And I, I believe the Fed is going to start raising that. And that's probably going to impact things over the long term. But inflation does play a role. But I don't think it's the most important thing that is making prices going crazy right now. Louis B is asking, if you're starting out and I've never done this before and have $50,000 available, what would you do? Yeah, uh, I mean, I would start by getting as educated as you can, like figure out what is the best way to pull a list and how should that be filtered and what should I say in my mail piece and where should I be doing this? What state and counties make the most sense for me? And uh, once you really understand that, start sending out mail. Mahad would like to know what are the top three states to invest in residential real estate today? And I'm going to expand on that and ask, is that different from places where it makes sense to invest in vacant land properties? Yeah, that, that's a tough one because I, I have not invested in all 50 states, nor do I do that today. So I, I don't think I'm the best, most objective source of information on that. And I think there is a difference between if you're going after houses versus land, because there's a different type of buyer who's going after that. But I know generally when it comes to land, usually the places that you're that make the most sense to start working in are areas where there is a demand for land. Like people are actively trying to buy up land so they can build on it. And usually what that translates to is areas that are growing, areas where people are flocking to that place and not away from that place. Uh, areas of interest, whether that be like tourism, you know, maybe an area by a national park or, you know, just think about states where people want to go there for one reason or another. That's going to do it for our fan blitz questions. Again, those questions come from comments on our YouTube channel. So make sure you go check out Upflip on YouTube and leave your questions in the comments there and we will uh, get them into a future show with a with a future guest. A few more questions uh, from me. Uh, in terms of numbers, looking at each of your businesses, what's your annual revenue and what kind of profit margins are you seeing on each of them? Yeah, the uh, the land business is definitely the way that I run it anyway is a lot more spiky because one thing you can do when you're selling land is sell properties with seller financing. And what that means is that instead of you know asking for one big cash price, you accept payments over the course of like three or five or 10 years. And that uh, one of the benefits of that is that it smooths out your income. But I decided a number of years ago to stop doing that because I found it just a little bit more complicated than I wanted it to be. So my land sales are cash. So it's just like one month I might make 25,000 bucks and the next month I might make nothing. Just depends on what deals I have going on. Whereas with uh, RE Tipster, the sources of income, there's a lot more of them and they're a lot more steady, just the way with that kind of business works. You know, in terms of like the the monthly or the annual revenue from each one, the land business has kind of been all over the map. I'd say like at its peak since I've started doing it, it's been six figures. And RE Tipster is, I think what was the revenue last year? It's six figures as well. I think it was over 600,000 last year for that one. And that's like the best it's ever been. So I, I, it took a long time to get to that point. So with that, you know, uh, spikier income from from the land business in particular, what do you, tips do you have for financial planning with that kind of variance in monthly revenue? Well, it kind of depends on how you're choosing to treat that, you know, a land business if you're doing that. And one of the cool things about it is that 
there's not like a rule book on how you're supposed to do it. Like some people do it as strictly a part-time gig for extra cash or just, you know, something that they can plug away at in their spare time. But in terms of planning for that, so if you're trying to do this as full-time, like your one and only thing, what a lot of people will do is go down that seller financing path because, you know, it really, it smooths out your income and makes it a lot more predictable. And there is definitely some downsides that come with that. There's drawbacks and, you know, borrowers will stop paying and you've got to track a lot more things and get a lot more parties and documentation involved, which is kind of annoying. But for the purpose of getting more predictable, stable income, that's a big deal being able to do that. And you don't get this spiky revenue stuff going on. Also, just consistently getting a system in place so that the direct mail keeps going out no matter what. So you're always getting new leads in the door. Like just because you have a big deal that you're doing doesn't mean you should stop sending out mail because if you stop sending out mail, that's going to slow everything down, stop your deal flow coming in. So I'd say just getting systems in place to keep all the wheels turning. I want to shift our focus over a little bit more to RE Tipster specifically. And are there certain you know courses or templates that you're finding are consistently the most popular? And what's the main source of revenue with that business? Yeah, I'd say like the big slices of the pie in terms of where income comes from. So one of them is we have a few courses that we've put together. One of them is on land investing, the land investing masterclass. That's probably the biggest single course, but there's other littler ones like the deal finding guide and house hacker university and just, you know, lower price, smaller courses that people can, you know, check out if they want to. But the idea with their, with that whole thing is that I don't ever want to like force somebody to buy a course in order to get the answers. So like, if you really want to, you can find everything you need to know for free on retipster.com. It's just not as organized. You have to search all over the place for stuff because that's never really, I wasn't making blog posts with the intent of making a course. It was just like, here's a piece of knowledge and here's a piece of knowledge. The course is like taking all that stuff, adding some new stuff to it and just organizing it. So it's very easy to find what you're looking for. For RE Tipster, you've got an email subscriber base of, of more than 16,000. Uh, what have you found most effective for building that subscriber list? And any any hacks you can share with our listeners? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if they're considered hacks or not, but something that I learned from um, a podcast I used to listen to called the Fizzle Show podcast. One time they had an episode about, about building an email list because I, I didn't really understand how to do it. But one of my key takeaways from that that I started implementing was this idea that people are not going to sign up for your email list just because you tell them to do that. Like you need to really give them a compelling reason, like something that just makes them salivate. Like I need to have that thing. <laughs> and uh, so over the years, I've created certain downloadable templates that you can either buy for 47 bucks from our store or you can sign up for our email list and get it for free or get a $20 discount or something like that. And this stuff is like, it's worth every cent that I'm saying it's worth. It's not like I'm just throwing some, you know, random number out there. I think that's probably made the biggest difference in terms of really getting people to actually sign up for stuff is like really giving them something of tangible value that's going to make an impact. And uh, the cool thing is it's when they do that and when they get that free thing and they realize like, wow, this really did make a difference. Like now you have their attention and they actually will read the emails that you send them and it does have some staying power. So I think if you can create some legitimately viable assets that really are just to give away to people that can, can be very time consuming to do that, but it totally makes a difference. 
And then what about on YouTube? What what strategies are you employing to build subscribers on that platform? And what tips might you have to to yeah. our listeners that might be trying to build a, a YouTube following as well? I think I'm actually kind of bad at it. Like I often forget to say like, like and subscribe to this video, all that stuff. Like I just doesn't even cross my mind. I'm just focused on making a good video that's going to make a difference for somebody. And um, that's really all I've done is every video I make, the thought process is, this ought to change somebody's life. Like this is not just noise I'm putting on the internet. Like for the right person who has this problem, this is solving their problem and it's making a huge difference to them. It's, it's weird. Cause like sometimes a certain video that I'm making that I think is going to be huge, like nobody cares about it. Like nobody watches it. Nobody likes it. It's just like, wow, that was a waste of my time. And other times things that I don't think are going to be a big deal blow up and become huge. And I, I, I wish I could tell you the formula on how to know what to do, but I, I kind of just, when I'm thinking about what is today's video is going to be about, I'm just looking at it like, okay, I have a chance to solve a huge problem for somebody that they've been struggling with. How do I best do that concisely in a way that's really going to make a difference? And if you do that long enough, eventually some things are going to catch on and they will work. And whether, whether or not you tell people to subscribe, they're going to do it because they're finding you helpful. And you mentioned uh, Airtable earlier as something that you're using for RE Tipster. What other tools or systems do you have in place to be creating, you know, podcast episodes, YouTube videos on a regular schedule? Yeah. Well, Airtable is kind of, it's one of the places where we just dump ideas and not just ideas, but like more deep, like an outline, like not just make this video with this headline, but like sort of show the outline of what's going to be in that video and why we're talking about it. Trello is another thing that we use for that as well. We have, uh, you know, outside writers who put together stuff occasionally on the blog and we use that to communicate with them about, here's what this article should be about and that kind of thing. Um, trying to think of what else. I know Google Sheets is another, as basic as that is, it's a super useful collaboration tool that you can share around with other people. Let's see, in terms of like, the podcast. I know we use Buzzsprout for that. I'm not sure what you guys are using for years, but uh, we find that pretty useful. Whenever we're doing interviews with people, we do a, a similar thing to you in terms of just putting together a really good outline of questions that we actually spent some time researching. And they're edu- by the way, your questions are great questions. Like I can tell somebody's putting a lot of work into figuring out where is this subject coming from and what did they do? And that's, that's uncommon. And I think it says a lot about you guys as podcasters, just the attention to detail and trying to figure out how to ask the best questions and pull out the best information. So just props to you on that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I want to make sure to give, give the proper credit to, to the, the team that stands behind me that, that helps supply, does all this research and supplies me with, with this great sheet of questions. Yeah. Yeah. And we've also got, um, just in terms of like understanding, like, what do we even talk about? Like what's going to be most helpful to mm-hmm. our audience? Mm-hmm. We've got a Facebook group and an online forum that honestly, like for me, a big part of why those things exist, it's not just to give our audience a voice and give them a place to share their issues and successes and that kind of thing. But it's also to figure out like, what are people struggling with? Like, I know what's in my head and what I'm struggling with, but Mm -hmm. like, once I can see consistency behind like, Ooh, this is a common problem that people are having a hard time with. Like maybe this software needs to be talked about because people are asking about it or Maybe this is a, an ongoing issue this year in the real estate market that we need to figure out how to deal with. So just not only having those things, but like paying attention to them and staying involved in those conversations and figuring out like, what do people need? Because this isn't just about me in my business. It's about like, where does everybody need help? 
But those things are certainly very useful just to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on. On the topic of the forum, I, you know, how did you go about getting that set up and how much work, uh, both in terms of time and energy, is it to moderate and maintain the forum on an average week? So the idea with the forum was, you know, kind of, you know, like I just mentioned, to give people a voice and figure out more about what people are, are talking about. But the software that we originally used years ago, we had a forum just for the members of our land investing course. Like it was just available for them and nobody else. We were using something called Discourse for that, uh, which is a free open source forum software that actually works pretty well. We eventually moved over to another one called NodeBB, which it's also good, but it, it does certain things that Discourse doesn't do. But NodeBB is also an open source free forum software that anybody can use and manipulate how they see fit to make changes to it. And honestly, like neither one of them are perfect. They both have their quirks and things that I don't like about them, but, but they're free and they work reasonably well and kind of get the job done. And the moderation stuff is, uh, it's not too difficult as long as you can get the right moderators involved. People who are sort of there all the time anyway. So you're not asking them to do anything different than they normally would because they're already there and really you're just empowering them to keep an eye on things and like change stuff if they need to. We have a, a moderator for our Facebook group who he actually like reached out to me. I didn't even ask him. He's just like, Hey, if you want a moderator, I'll be your moderator. That's like perfect. That's exactly what I need. <laughs> so the great. Yeah. And and he does a great job. His name is Jesse and he, um, he just understands what's to look, what, what to look for. And I, I do hardly anything in terms of moderating that. I've also got uh, you know, a virtual assistant and an editor who also jump in and handle both things as well. And uh, I'd say the public forum is more of a hassle to moderate because I don't know what it is about that. Maybe Facebook has some kind of automatic moderation built into it or something, but we get a lot more just true spam posts from like bots and stuff on the internet that go in there and post all kind of crazy stuff. And there, there are certain moderation things you can put in place. Like, you know, if a person signs up, they can't post for 20 minutes. So like, or, you know, a person can't post more often than once every 60 seconds. So if there is a bot that is just going to like, you know, dump all kinds of spam all over your forum, it's going to slow them down at least. So, and once you figure out who they are, you can ban their IP address. You can ban their account. doesn't mean they'll never come back, but it'll just be a lot harder for them to come back. And then can you talk about the benefits of, of building a membership program and then spe more specifically what a membership on RE Tipster gives users access to? So originally when we started uh, this land course, the first course that I ever put out, I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of how to price this thing. And I, I had it set up as a monthly membership where a person could pay, I think it was originally 45 bucks a month. And, you know, as a member, you get access to the course. And the thing about the course is that a lot of people, when they make a course like this, they'll make it once and they don't touch it again for like five or 10 years. So the, the course that you look at could be very old and outdated. And that's not how I do things. I'm usually in there every month, adding to the course, making changes to it because the business is always changing. And I want people to be able to see current information that's relevant today. So just having access to like current stuff that's not outdated is a really big deal to me. So, you know, they got that and the forum, that kind of thing. We also do a monthly office hours call where we answer questions live and people can talk to me. And so there's that. But uh, the problem with that kind of pricing model for this kind of course is that most people are just going to 
take the course and then be done. They're not going to stick around. So um, I think that kind of payment model makes a lot more sense for like software stuff that people constantly need Mm -hmm. all the time to run their business, but it, it doesn't make as much sense for a course. So now we've switched the model to, there's a couple different pricing plans. There's either 1297 or 1997, but then that's it. It's lifetime access and you don't pay anything else after that. It's the same kind of thing where once you pay, you're in for life and you have access to all those updates and office hours and forum and all that stuff. And then uh, can you also talk about your certified coaches program, how you decided on the structure of that and the, the pay and revenue for those that are, that are in the certified coaches program? Yeah, that's actually kind of an experiment that I'm doing now. <laughs> I'm like in the really early stages. Love it. Yeah, I, I don't know if we're going to keep doing it forever. It might just be something we're doing this year and then we're done with it. But the idea is very similar to what like Dave Ramsey does and uh, Donald Miller, if you're familiar with him and StoryBrand and Mike Michalowicz and Profit First, where there's like, they talk about certain concepts in these books that they write. And they say, hey, if you want a... Dave Ramsey's certified financial planner. Here's a bunch of them that you can like, they understand what we're talking about here. They're not going to hear your thoughts and think it's just some foreign concept. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do with RE tips to certified coaches. There's not a ton of them, but there's a handful of different coaches out there that talk specifically about this type of land investing business model. You know, a lot of people used to come to me to ask for coaching and actually still do, but that's not really why I started RE Tipster and that's not really how I like spending my time because it's not, mm. it's not very scalable. And I just, I don't know, being on calls with people all day and not being able to control whether or not they take action just kind of turned me off. But there's other coaches out there who are happy to do this. So I was like, you know what, why don't I find those people and make sure me and them are on the same page and they can pay annually to be a certified coach and I'll list them and a few other certified coaches on this page. So when people come and want coaching help, I can say, I don't do it, but I trust these people. Go check them out. And then kind of shifting gears uh, a little bit away from Ari Tipster and a little bit more back to the land business. Can you tell us about the process for flipping that real estate? You know, are you making any changes or improvements to the land or how are you increasing that value to make a profit? That's one of the beautiful things about it. I Usually I'm not doing anything to it. The, the value is in the fact that I'm buying a property that is worth a certain amount, but I'm paying far below that market value. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a typical land deal, I might be paying like 20 to 30% of its value. And on closing day, it's already worth way more than I paid for it. So, I mean, I certainly could make changes and some people do that. Some people will subdivide them or change the zoning or put up a fence or something like that. And that can definitely make an impact, but it's also just more stuff to do and it's more things that can go wrong and it takes time. So typically what I'm doing is nothing. I just buy it for a really cheap price and relist it and get it sold. And the process of doing that is just getting really good photography of the property, putting together a really good listing, posting that listing on Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and Zillow for sale by owner, which are all free places to post property for sale. And you can pay for things like landsofamerica.com where you can get, you know, exposure to a more targeted audience as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the value you're adding to the land is that you know how to sell land. Yeah. That, that, and also like understanding where most land buyers are coming from. Most people who buy vacant land, at least the kind of vacant land that I sell, they're buying it because of a dream, not because it practically mm-hmm. makes sense for them to actually do anything. Like, and, and I have this same thought process. Sometimes when I see 
a vacant lot by a lake. It's like, you know, wouldn't that be cool to park my RV there on the weekends or build my dream cottage there someday? And, you know, these are dreams that, that we have. But like when it really comes down to reality, it's like, am I actually going to do that? Like, am I really going to spend the money? Am I really going to get an RV and go out there? Probably not. But it's a lot easier to just buy the thing and think you're going to do it. And um, that's also a source of a lot of deals where we buy property is buy property from people who had a dream 20 years ago and they realized their plans weren't going to go that way. And now they're selling it for a really cheap price. So understanding like if people are going to buy this because of a dream, it's not my responsibility whether or not they actually do that. That's up to them. But if that's what they're trying to do, how do I make it go along with that dream? You know, how do I make it look like a great place that you could put your RV and granted, like I need to be truthful in everything that I say in this listing. If it can't be used for an RV, I'm not going to say that. I could actually get the mm -hmm. facts and that kind of thing, but it's really just understanding the psychology behind most land buyers and why they're interested in the first place. And then what's the biggest challenge of owning a real estate investment business? I think that depends on what type of real estate you're dealing with. Like the challenges for a household sale would probably be very different than a land investor, but I'd say probably for me, sometimes vacant land properties are slower to sell. That's one of the big difference between houses and land. Usually houses will sell very quickly and land. Sometimes it does, but sometimes you got to wait six months or nine months. And sometimes that gets frustrating because it's not that I'm doing anything wrong. Like I've got a great listing. It's priced right. Everything is there. It's just going to take time. And one way to combat that is to work in a market where land sells faster by default, but sometimes you just got to wait and that can be really frustrating. And it, it causes me to doubt myself. Like, do I need to lower the price? Like, should I have not bought this property? Like, why isn't this thing selling? And it's, it's kind of this mind game you have to deal with every time that happens. So that's probably the biggest challenge for me. And if you could go back and start your businesses again, is there anything you do differently with either one? And how might that change have affected the trajectory of that business? Well, good question. I think with a land business, I probably would have, like in my first couple of years, I, I had a lot of limiting beliefs and I, I did a lot of work on things that weren't really necessary. Like every time I bought a property, I would, I would drive out and visit the property just to like feel better about it and be like, yep, there it is. And that wasted a ton of time and gas money. <laughs> and it just, it's not something you have to do. But for some reason, I just was stuck and I felt like I had to do that. I also thought that I had to, you know, kind of going along with that because I felt like I needed to visit every property. I would only buy properties that were within driving distance and I didn't have to do that either. Mm -hmm. Like I, you can buy them anywhere in the U.S. as long as you can, you know, get the data you need online to do your due diligence that way. And I didn't understand that for a few years. So I would have just not limited myself unnecessarily like that. And uh, with Ari Tipster, I don't know, I probably would have probably would have started doing a lot more videos a lot sooner because I, I feel like videos make a big impact for a lot of reasons. And I was scared to put my face on camera. I was scared to really do any of it. And every time I made a video, it would take me forever to do it. Like when I see the kind of videos you guys do, like I know how much work goes into that stuff. Like it's a huge job to make a great video, but it can do a lot and get exposure to a lot of people. And I just had a really hard time with that in the beginning. And then what do you see as the main role of a CEO in your style of business? What does it mean to be a great leader in a real estate business? I don't know that I'm a great one, to be honest with you. So I don't mean to say this like mm -hmm. I have this figured out, but I think uh, understanding what jobs 
I need to be doing versus everybody else. And it's, it's probably one of the mm. biggest areas where I struggle is because I, I try to control too much myself. I have a hard time letting go of stuff and letting people make their mistakes with my business. But that kind of thing, unwillingness to let go really slows things up. So I think being able to spot talent and understand how to mold that talent and put it in the right places, put the right people in the right seats and, uh, you know, how to come alongside them and guide them without being a micromanager. These are all skills that uh, I think a great CEO has. And I have some of them, but not all of them by any means. How do you, how do you go about developing those? What are you doing to improve yourself in those areas? In some cases, I think it sort of depends on the person who I'm working with, but in some cases I'm too much of a micromanager and I just spend too much time trying to get them to figure it out. And usually what that means is that it's the wrong person. Like I, I shouldn't be trying to make them figure out something that should come easily to them. So a lot of times that means I need to find somebody else or put them on something different. Uh, and other times I don't spend enough time with them. Like I, I just assume they've got it and they don't actually in weeks and months go by until it becomes painfully evident. They don't know what they're doing and time has been wasted and mistakes have been made. And so I think just being aware of what each individual needs is a big thing. And then actually doing the work to stay on top of them and make sure that communication is there and they're not just lost and floundering around thinking they know, they know what they're doing. And then what's the most effective way to scale a real estate investing business? So let's say you wanted to double your current revenue. What steps would you take to do that? Yeah. Well, with, with like a land business, I'd say double your, the mail that you send it out. And the thing about that, like, it's easy for me to say that, but doubling your mail, it means a lot of things. It means you're going to get a lot more calls coming in and responses and deals you have to look through. So at the same time, you better have a really good system for handling that intake of deals and finding the right help, whether it means hiring people, a VA, or even a full-time acquisitions manager to sift through that stuff and talk to those people. And so, yeah, I mean, you can certainly do it, but it just, it means you're inviting a lot of new complexity into your business, which can certainly be dealt with, but you just have to be ready to handle that. And the final question that we, we like to end all of our interviews with, what's your favorite business book and why is it your favorite? Yeah, that's a really tough question because there's so many good ones out there. One that always sticks out in my mind is a good one. It, it can't apply to business, but also just life in general is uh, Crucial Conversations. I think there's like four different authors that wrote it, but it's just a really good book on how to deal with high stakes conversations, like whether it's a difficult thing or a touchy subject where, you know, things have the potential to go very wrong if you don't handle this conversation right. But it explains how to do this in such a way that everybody walks away from the conversation better off, like glad that the elephant in the room was addressed instead of ignored. And that's a huge skill to have in life. And I naturally, that's not really my skill set, but that, I found that book really helpful at showing me how to do that. And I've applied it several times and it seems to work. Love that. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Upflip podcast. Make sure you check out Upflip on YouTube. Check us out as well the on the blog, theupflip.com slash blog. Seth Williams, owner of RE Tipster. Thanks so much again for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. 